We humans are worshiping beings. That sounds like a pretty churchy thing to say, doesn't it? But one doesn't need to be religious to notice this fact about humans. Jonathan Haidt, an atheist who serves as a professor of social psychology at NYU, has said, quote, human beings evolved to be religious. It's in our nature. There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of each man. The author David Foster Wallace, not particularly religious um, writer, once said this, in the, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. We humans devote our lives into things that we feel are bigger and more transcendent than ourselves to try to find love and meaning and peace and happiness. This is what we do as humans. One of my quarantine shows, seems like during the quarantine we, we watched some new shows, and one of the ones that I got hooked on was the Apple TV drama, The Morning Show. And yes, once again, this morning I have to offer a disclaimer, this doesn't make for family-friendly viewing. I watch it with the remote in hand. But one of the reasons that the show has interested me is that it displays a realism about the human experience. Reese Witherspoon plays an upstart anchorwoman who has aspirations to change the world. She's looked out into becoming the morning host on one of the major TV networks. It's her dream job. She's adored by fans. She lives in this posh New York City hotel. She's living the life she always wanted, and yet she has discovered that this world is one in which no one seems to be satisfied. It's a world of narcissism and backstabbing, a culture that promises Eden but seems to actually have only delivered a kind of hell on earth. This is a community of people who have made success and reputation and pleasure their gods because in them they have imagined a kind of salvation. And yet everyone, and I mean just about every character in the show, seems to be on the verge of either a panic attack or just downright miserable. I couldn't help as I've watched through, through, through the second season that it's a reminder that false gods are brutal taskmasters. They're always demanding more, always promising, but then never delivering. As one character says in a climactic scene, scene, human nature, it's surprisingly universal and it's surprisingly, and it's universally disappointing. Surprisingly universal and universally disappointing. Now that's a pretty bleak portrait, isn't it? And yet, the show also at times paints a more complicated picture of our humanity. In an interview after the credits of one of the shows, Witherspoon reflects on what the series is attempting to depict. She says, as human beings, we are fallible. We are capable of horrible things. But she adds, we're also capable of wonderful things. 
Interesting enough, this ancient book that we call the Bible agrees with this famous actor on this point. We are both wondrous and wretched creatures. But as we will see this morning, Christianity explains why this is so. And one more thing about that, about that show, The Morning Show. The show even gestures at times about the possibility of grace. Yeah, it's in a kind of secular way, but it's, it's, it seems to be pointing at this aspiration of grace and forgiveness. Jennifer Aniston, who also stars in the show, says in an interview, the show is attempting to address the big question, in her words. The question is, is there redemption for anyone? Is there forgiveness? Well, again, as a Christian minister, my ears pop up at that point. Because Christianity is very much interested in those same questions. But the good news is that the Scriptures don't simply pose the questions about redemption and transformation. It answers those questions. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. And I hope you'll put your finger there. We're going to be, we're going to be doing, we're going to be moving around our Bibles a bit this morning. Sometimes I'll summarize sections of Scripture. Sometimes I'll get you to to go there. Part of the challenge this morning is we're stepping into a text that comes at the end of an argument in Hebrews, and it's actually picking up on a thread that that ties together the entire story of the Bible. So I need to set things up a bit. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was told to build a tabernacle and eventually a temple, which were to be the kind of headquarters for worship. These structures were made with several boundaries within them. The closer to the center, the more sacred the space, culminating in the Holy of Holies, separated by a curtain where God's special presence dwelt on earth, where heaven and earth met. The high priests were consecrated and set aside to serve and guard the temple so that a holy God's presence and blessing could be mediated to his people. Now that seems pretty foreign to our modern ears. To actually understand the full significance of the priests and the temple, we have to go back further into the story, to the opening chapters of Genesis. This is the passage in Genesis 2 we just heard read, where God creates the land and he puts the man not only in Eden, so he creates the land, and then he speaks about Eden, and then within Eden there's this garden, a garden which we're later told God God walks in, that his special presence is there. Like the later temple, Genesis gives us a picture of a space where as you get closer to the center, you get closer to God's presence. And then in Genesis 2.15, there's these two verbs that describe why the man was put there in the garden. It's, they're translated in the ESV, verse 15, work it and keep it. The thing about those two words is they're used together throughout the Old Testament story to describe the role of the priests of Israel. Now there's quite a bit of Old Testament scholarship in support of this, and I don't have time And you probably don't have the patience to hear me recite all of that this morning. So I want to give it to you in a nutshell. What becomes clear about this ancient thought world, this ancient picture 
that we're given. The first humans are presented as image bearers of God, royal priests made to mediate God's presence in the world as they worship in God's presence and care for this sacred garden. They were called to multiply and extend the boundaries of this sacred place as God's representatives, cultivating and tending, using the raw materials God gave and reflecting God in creating new things, ordering the world, imaging their creator in their work, reflecting his love and his care in their relationships with one another, and thereby extending God's blessing to the ends of the earth. This is a beautiful picture of the human vocation. This is what we were made to do. But then things, as we know the story from here, things begin to unravel. Things get sideways when instead of reflecting God and mediating his presence, the royal priests decided they know better than God. They didn't just want to reflect God to the world, they wanted to be their own gods. And when worship goes wrong, everything begins to go wrong. And so God does what a just and good God must do. Adam and Eve must leave God's intimate presence. They must leave the garden. But the thing about human nature is that we can never quite escape the image of God. It has been pressed upon us. We will continue to worship. We will continue to live in relationships. We will continue to create, to multiply, and build cities. We see that in the story. We see that still today. We will till the land and make culture, but the rest of the story takes place east of Eden, with all of life now distorted by idolatrous worship. And so this leaves us both wonderful and wretched, still reflecting God, still, still these recipients of grace, but due to false worship, we are twisted and distorted. The story of the Bible is how God is going to heal these distortions. It is the story of how God will carry out his plan to make the whole world, the whole earth, his temple. How he will fill the earth with his divine, special presence and thus bring blessings to the ends of the earth. The tabernacle and the priests were temporary signposts pointing back, pointing Israel back to what had been lost in the garden temple in Genesis 3, but also pointing forward to the greater reality of what's to come. In fact, listen to Exodus 19, to what God tells not just the priests, but the entire nation of Israel. He says in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people, through the mediation of the priests in the temple, through their sacrificial system, were to worship and to be, and, and be set aside as holy, and this was to spill out over into the nations. They were to, to mediate God's blessing and presence to the world. This, after all, is the promise he makes throughout Genesis to Abraham and the other patriarchs. God was going to be a blessing to them to bless the world. But of course, we know how that went as well. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that failed in their priestly duty, it was the nation as well. 
Israel failed to reflect God to the nations because of their false worship. It keeps coming back to worship. What are you supposed to be doing? And yet throughout the Old Testament, there is this hope, there's this foreshadowing, this this prophetic word pointing towards a royal priest who would one day come, whose presence would mediate God to his people and spread the blessing and true worship of God to the nations. And the argument of the book of Hebrews, in fact, we could say the argument of the entire New Testament is that priestly king has has arrived. That is the good news The blessing is finally breaking in in the person of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great great priest over the house of God, The temple and the sacrificial system were temporary means for worship as God worked his plan to spread his blessing to the ends of the earth. Now what the author of Hebrews is telling us is the curtain that limited the access to God's presence has been torn. We have access to God because of Christ. He cleanses us. He makes us holy by his sacrifice. He mediated between us and a holy God becoming the sacrifice so that we can come in and live in the presence of God. So what, is this, what does this mean for us today? After all this time, one thing we can say is, you know, even though the Bible at, at times seems so ancient and foreign to us, it seems to reflect this true picture, this picture we can see that you don't even have to be a Christian to see, make sense of human nature. We're still the same. We humans still run after false gods, and when we don't aim our hearts at what we were made for, there's corruption, and this corruption can can then spill out over into everything into our lives. The human problem is wrong worship. The solution is right worship. Worshiping makes us into our true selves. The humans we were always intended to be, true worship can't help but spill over out into all of our lives. Or to put this into New Testament biblical language, picking up on this storyline, this is why Peter calls us a, a kingdom of priests. If you've trusted in Christ, you are a royal priest who has been sanctified to do the work, to mediate God's presence, to, to worship God to bring blessings to the world. Or to get more into specifics, look at 22 through 25. Look at how the author frames this. Notice in these verses, each of the three exhortations I'm about to cover start with, let us. Hebrews assumes that we will do these things as a community. All of this only works if we see ourselves as us's not simply a bunch of eyes. Number one, draw near to God in faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is a call to worship. 
Jesus offers restoration to God, a life lived in his presence, and with this, a renewal of our vocations as humans. So we come and worship. Come, come pray to him. Meditate in your heart on his word. Believe his promises. Sing his praises. The second part of verse 22 goes on. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now at this point, the author of Hebrews is actually referencing or at least alluding to the prophet Ezekiel. Which, which brings to the fore this kind of new and living way of worship that verse 20 has mentioned. Just listen to the words from chapter 36 of Ezekiel. And note, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus announced the new covenant to his disciples. Ezekiel 36, verse 24, he says, I will take from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God is saying, hey, there's coming a day I'm going to make you into the right kind of worshiper. I'm going to cleanse you from the stain and misery of false gods. And then he goes on, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's presence will be on earth, not in temple, but in, not in temples, but in human bodies. And what the New Testament calls the living temple, his people, his church. So we draw near to faith, we draw near to God in faith. This is what we do when we come together to worship. Number two, we hold fast in hope. Look at verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. But how do we do that? How do we hold fast? In the midst of our doubt and anxiety and fears and sorrows, how do we hold fast? Look at the second part of the verse. For he who promised is faithful. We hold fast in hope by focusing on Jesus, by turning our gaze away from ourselves, away from our careers, away from our insecurities, away from the idols. And we together look to Jesus. So we repeat his promises. We confess our sins and recall the gospel and we preach and speak the gospel to one another. We drink from the cup and we eat of his body, yes, to remind each other of Christ's work, but more than that, to experience his presence among us. The third thing here is we stir each other up to love and good works. Look at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, the, as is the habit of some. We know from the book of Hebrews that there was persecution going on, and yet here, and, and it's likely that, that some were not coming to worship because of intense persecution. But he's calling them, even in the midst of that, to come back, to come back, to worship together. 
He says this worship gathering is the means by which we are stirred to live out the human calling. True worship is how we change. This is how we are stirred up to love and good works so that God's blessing will spill out into the world. When I was a college professor a few years ago, one day a a young Christian woman, a, a grad student, actually a teaching assistant, stopped by my office because she was having doubts about Christianity. She was going through a bit of an emotional train wreck and was, was really struggling with some bad life decisions she had made. So for most of the conversation, um, especially these initial conversations, I do my best just to listen. And towards the end, I started just asking some questions. And one of the things I asked was, you know, how are things going at church? And she confessed a little sheepishly that she had stopped going a few months ago. She said she didn't really have any bad experiences. You know, when somebody tells me that, I'm kind of bracing, right? Because we've heard church can hurt people sometimes, right? So I'm bracing for that, but that wasn't what was going on. She didn't have any bad experiences. It's just, as she, as she told me, She was looking for answers, and she felt spending more time with Christian professors and listening to lectures and other things online was the best way to find these answers. In other words, the church wasn't engaging her deep enough intellectually. She was intelligent. She was intelligent, but somewhere along the way, she missed what church was about. Somewhere along the way, she had embraced this view that humans are primarily containers for ideas, and so church must be primarily about just kind of pouring the right data in. And once she came to realize that she could, well, hang on, I can go on YouTube, download some lectures, and talk with smart people about books, well, that that would probably be a better route to get the data in and fill our brain, well then once you come to that conclusion, why church? Now reading big books and trying to learn from smart people who are smarter than you, well those are kind of my things, okay? So don't hear me saying that's a bad idea, okay? I don't, I don't but, but, we're not simply giant brains. We're doxological creatures. We're creatures who worship. We were creatures, we were made to be, we are made as creatures to give glory to another. And that's what church is about. We humans will worship. And so I come to church because some days I can't stop worshiping the wrong things. I need others around me. I need you to point me to God through your worship. I need others around me to at least help me get going again in the right direction. I need to confess I'm still pulled in by false gods. And I need others to help me. And I know that sometimes you will need me to help you in the same way. 
So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And finally, I didn't read before this last little phrase, and this is what I want to end on. Look at it in verse 25. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The one thing I haven't said, which I just don't have enough time to talk about this but in detail, but Christian worship is forward-looking. It's forward-looking. In the final chapters of the Bible, the book of Revelation tells us God will return Sorry about that. My last page of the notes. <laughs> Way to end a sermon, right? Um, in the final j- chapters of the Bible story, the book of Revelation tells us God will return to fill the earth with his intimate presence again. The entire earth, when you get to Revelation 21, is pictured as this garden city with no temple like the one of the Old Testament because God's special presence will fill the whole earth. Heaven and earth will be combined. God himself will be the temple. So we worship looking forward with our eyes gazing towards Christ and what he's bringing in, knowing that the tears and the sorrows that we have to worship through now will one day become tears of joy. For the true royal priest has arrived He has atoned for our sins, and he is coming back to make all things new. What else can we do but worship? Let's pray. Father, may, even as we close our service, as we take part in the sacrament, as we pray to you. May we do so in your spirit and in truth. Will you form us and mold us and shape us? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.